Hello and welcome to Ascend Higher, the podcast of True Freedom Trust. My name is Stuart Parker and I'm the director of this UK-based charity. We hold to the historic Christian understanding of what the Bible teaches about sex and relationships. We offer teaching, pastoral support groups and conferences. This podcast is connected to our quarterly magazine, Ascend, which includes a range of articles, reviews and personal stories, all dealing with what it's like to be a Christian attracted to others of the same sex. For the winter edition of Ascend, Peter and I discuss some of the popular arguments against the orthodox biblical understanding of sexuality. We talk about why these arguments seem to have so much resonance today and how we can best reply to them. Let's listen in. Well, hello, Peter. It's lovely to talk with you. Uh, You've been involved with True Freedom Trust for a while, I think. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about where you live and um, what you've been up to during COVID? Hello, Stuart. So, yeah, I'm Peter Old. Um, I live in Canterbury in Kent. Uh, We've been here now for over a decade. Uh, We moved here for a year and we're now in the 11th year of that year because God always has other plans from uh, beyond you. Um, I'm an ordained Church of England priest. I spent five and a half, six years as a full-time parish priest. And then uh, I moved into non-stipendary ministry, which basically means that I remain an ordained Church of England priest, but I do a a secular day job. And that has involved um, lots of designing of mathematical models and analysing mathematical models for banks and other financial institutions, both in the commercial space and more recently in the regulatory space. Um, So, yeah, lockdown. Um, I um, ate too much like everybody else did. Um, I realised about a month in I was drinking too much. It was really, I think a lot of us did. It was a really sort of, um, dare I say, sobering moment for some of us. And and uh, um, it's quite. I think it's quite healthy sometimes to realise the way that you are soothing anxiety. So what I did at that point was I got my old decks out and I started recording mixes of every year of my life, or at least for, we're, we're kind of the same age, which means that we're almost Saga members. Hmm. Uh, I know that neither of us actually looks it, but we are, I, I, I'm, I'm actually wearing very focal contact lenses as we record this, um, this uh, podcast. I have reached that sort of point in my life. Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of me. And yeah, I've been involved with TFT since, um, probably since the early days when I was really came to understand my sexuality uh, in the days of the wonderful Martin, Martin Hallett and Martin David and so on. But yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. So um, that's quite a scary thought being approaching Saga membership. I hadn't quite yeah. realised well, that. Now, I know, I know a number of years ago, you ran a website called An Exercise in the Fundamentals of Orthodoxy, um, which was really good at engaging with all these matters around sexuality in the church. And you, know, you had lots of people commenting and dialoguing on there. It must have taken a lot of your time. That's That sort of came to a natural end. Um, do you want to tell, tell us a little bit about why you wrapped that up in the end yeah it sort of came to a natural end sort of 2010 2011 kind of at the same time that my full-time ministry stopped yeah I was the first and somebody correct me if I'm wrong but I was the first gay whatever you want to say gay same-sex attracted Church of England priest with a conservative theology to come out publicly so um that that was the traction really that, that I was I sort of laid the road and then sort of stepped aside for better 
more capable people to come alongside. It doesn't mean I hadn't stopped thinking about um, sex and identity and particularly the, the iconography of the body and sex and what it tells us about Jesus and his saving work. Um, carry on doing that. But I've sort of stepped aside from sort of having an, an active public ministry in that area and more sort of behind the scenes, bit of teaching, bit of discussion, bit of um, input into conversations. That makes a lot of sense. And I know for anyone who's interested that all those conversations and posts are archived somewhere on the internet. So if you Google Fundamentals of Orthodoxy, Peter Ald, I'm sure they'll come up and you can sift through them for hours on end. Okay, well, what I'd like to talk about today, Peter, is looking at some arguments, sort of revisionist arguments that might say, well, what the Bible seems to say is that marriage is just for one man and one woman. But actually, if you look at it again, then, you know, that, that, that may not be the way what it's really saying. And there's been there's a sort of number of arguments here which have got quite a lot of traction. And I thought maybe we could just kind of run through a few of them, acknowledge where these arguments have a real resonance in our culture, what we might say differently to them, and, and also kind of how can we, as, as, a, as the church, how can we respond positively so that the biblical narrative actually kind of takes the front stage rather than these arguments? Let's get right That's, in there um, yeah. with the first of these revisionist arguments, you know, that quotes, the Bible hardly ever mentions homosexuality. And I think this does have traction for people who essentially see the Bible being basically a negative set of rules that we've got to live by. So if it doesn't mention homosexuality very much, it can't really be be that important to God. And so let's talk about other things. Yeah. So simply asking the question, demands of us to, to define terms. So the Bible doesn't talk about talk a lot about homosexuality, but what do we mean when we say homosexuality? Because that word brings up two ideas. So firstly is this modern, and by modern I sort of say in the last sort of 150 years, but increasingly in the last sort of 30, 40 years, the idea of homosexual as a core identity and state of being. So does the Bible talk a lot about that? Well, you know what? No, neither does it really talk about heterosexuality as a state of being or any form of flux in between that whatsoever. The Bible really isn't interested in those kind of sexual orientation identifiers. It doesn't not into, into that. But if we talk about homosexuality in terms of homosexual acts, then we're into really interesting interesting territory because the bible has huge amounts to say about sex and sexual acts and they're linking between not just what they say about two humans who engage or more than two humans in some cases who engage in those sexual acts but what they say about god and his saving work through jesus now this is a topic i could spend hours and hours talking about but fundamentally the Bible talks about a whole series of sexual actions, sexual activities that two consenting or non-consenting people could do. And it basically says that all of them outside of sex between a man and a woman within marriage are in some way um, not godly 
or even dare I say idolatrous. And so does the Bible not say a lot about homosexuality in terms of homosexual acts? Well, we, it does in some specific places. And, you know, there's there's what's interesting is that when you look at like the clobber passages in, say, 1 Corinthians 6 or down in, you know, Paul's pastorals to Timothy and the arguments about sort of, you know, the meaning of words, are, you know, arsenos and coites and all those kind of things. What's interesting is that most honest revisionist Bible commentators are quite clear that the texts mean what they mean, right? So even though the Bible says only in a few places sort of prohibits this form of sex, it's absolutely clear on that. And it fits into a wider narrative of the Bible saying very positive things about a particular form of sex between a husband and wife and linking it almost as an uh, as an icon of the union between Christ and his church. And if you go into Ephesians 5, um, Paul is about as graphic as he can get as to how detailed of that union he actually means is an indicator, the sexual union of man and 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 of husband and wife being an icon of the saving work of, of Jesus and and his church. And you know if we had more time we go into that in more detail and then everything else outside it sort of is not appropriate now once you realize that sex in the bible is not so much about the two people doing it but about indicating something more about indicating that the union of christ and his church and the saving work that christ does for his church you suddenly realise that this isn't just a list of, you know, all, all the other kind of sex you can do. It isn't just a list of, you know, bad things. No, 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 but don't do that. Actually, there's a deep spiritual meaning. So that, so that um, sex outside of marriage becomes idolatrous because it's, it's using your body to say something wrong about Jesus, right? So, and, and again, if we had hours, we could go into this in more detail. But in summary... Does the Bible not say a lot about homosexuality in terms of homosexual acts? Well, it mentions them about five or six times, and it's absolutely clear what it means at that point. It mentions a whole bunch of other things a few times. It's absolutely clear about what that means. And it all fits into this wider narrative in the Bible that sex between a husband and wife within marriage points to the union of Christ and his church in a way that no other sexual encounter can. And other sexual encounters, because sex says something about the union of Christ and his church, other sexual encounters outside of the one that is designed to show the union of Christ and his church says something wrong about Jesus. And it's interesting that in my story, getting a hold of this in my early to mid-20s, getting this theological, and I'm going to say Christological, this Christ-centered understanding of sex, was key for me to go... Well, you know what? Actually, if I refuse to let my body say something sexually that says something wrong about Jesus, that itself is an act of worship. Uh, that itself is me worshipping God with my body because I'm not going to let it say something idolatrous about Jesus. Now, that's all, you know, that's all kind of you know, a little bit super spiritual, you might say. But actually, when you tap into it, it's really powerful stuff and helps unlock what the Bible is actually saying. And this, this sort of, um, I'll, I'll say one more thing on this because I've gone on about it. But this idea 
of the union of husband and wife indicating the union of Christ and his church is all the way through the Bible, right from the first few verses in Genesis. It helps you understand all the obscure Levitical passages around, you know, if you if you rape somebody, buying them off and so on. All those things actually begin to fit. And we again, we could go into those in detail. You find a beautiful expression of it within Song of Songs, right? That, that eight chapter sort of poem in the middle of the old, testament that is actually written as a chiasm as a chiasm as a, a, a hebrew form of poetry where you sort of you, you 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 sort of say something and then you say another thing and then you get to the to the center and then you come out again and say the same things again like a mirror and and uh certificate 15 time the middle of song of songs is a climax between the male and the female making the theological point and when you see that, you realize that, you know, sex is so important to how we speak about Jesus and his saving work that, that, that God has written a whole book about it. And that, and that once we buy into that, we get it right. And we and we start to say we, we start to to really sort of understand why the Bible says what it says about sex. Very helpful. Thank you, Peter. So it sounds like. Although we can kind of get into the the detailed texts and the Bible is is solid and clear on on what it says, even in those sort of so called clobber passages. Actually, what can be more helpful is is sort of zooming out and looking at what is God's positive view for biblical marriage. What's the goodness of that? What's the meaning of sexual union? Rather than you know how many times can you spot this word in the Bible? It's like let's capture something of God's vision. And let's let's truly teach the gospel rather than just looking at don'ts in the Bible. Yeah. Good. OK, so that's kind of a little bit how we can respond to that. Yeah. How many times is homosexuality mentioned in the Bible? Now, you mentioned in your answer there a little bit about, you know, how. This question of whether homosexual acts in the Bible are really like the consensual long-term non-abusive relationships that we might see in today's society or whether what the bible really has in mind is sort of man boy predatory abusive type relationships mm. and that that can be a kind of a pushback i think as well can't it this idea of, mm. of well they were talking about something different if they'd seen what um same-sex unions look like in today's society then they would have had a different idea and i think this this perhaps has quite a lot of traction because once you start sowing that's that kind of question i'm not sure people are that are as equipped as they perhaps they once were to sort sure. of weigh arguments around the historical the historicity of, of of certain texts and so forth so it's almost like well if you can start to raise a few questions you've almost won the argument here yeah so there's actually two questions there so the first question is did the new testament writers because that's really where we're drawing our, our thoughts from did, did they and did they understand the full complexity of what homosexual relationships might look like in their context the second question is um which we'll come on to once we answer that one. The question is, is best sort of um, best described by Jeffrey John's little booklet, which is really interesting to read called Permanent Stable Faithful, which is basically saying that if, if something is permanent 
a relationship permanent, stable, faithful? Should it be blessed by God? Well, let's, let's come back to that in a moment. Let's look at first at this argument that the New Testament writer, particularly Paul, did not understand the full possibilities of what homosexual relationships would look like. So Paul is a is a Jew, but he's a very Hellenized Jew. He comes from Tarsus up the coast from Judah. It's a very sort of it's it's a place that's been Greek for four five hundred years. It has this big Phoenician influence. It's been Roman for at least almost a hundred years. He's basically a very cosmopolitan theologian. Right? Tarsus is the kind of place where you've seen it all. So the kind of gay relationships that existed in that sort of Hellenic world, as we call it, that sort of, that sort of Eastern Mediterranean, that, that sort of Greek influence world. Um, yes, there was this Greek form of sort of pederasty, which was basically where an older man took a younger sort of boy in his sort of mid-teens under his wing and uh, nurtured him and got him ready for adulthood. Right now, that kind of that kind of um, social practice had pretty well died out by the time Paul came along. It'd been gone for 150, 200 years. Not that they didn't know about it, but 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 it had kind of died out. So he's aware of it, but it wasn't the thing that was that was that was happening around at the time. And also there are other Greek words that we can use a lot better than a synecoitus, which basically Paul makes up with a lot of Greek words that will talk specifically about that, that, that it's never used by the New Testament, but we know are contextually used and documents at the time. So the other kind of, um, the other two kinds of relationships that were spoken about or that, that weren't sound. First, it was the Roman sort of domineering homosexual relationship, where essentially you take for yourself a slave and he becomes your your no rent paid boy. Right? That's that's the best way to describe it. So so it's basically it's a very power uh, driven relationship. Um, the 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 uh, slave becomes uh, basically the sex tool uh, of the of the owner. It was found a lot in the Roman army. So the kind of sexual relationships that existed at the time of Paul in this Hellenistic world, right, which which the Greeks around him had, were relationships of equals. The, the the previous relationships, which were which were power ones, the pederastic ones in the Greek culture had gone. The Roman sexual relationships were power relationships. They were always a social superior to a social inferior and often, uh, often to a slave. I had no choice about it. But the relationships he saw, and there are lots of uh, lots of Greek plays from the period that show these kind of relationships. Um, and there's one or two interesting films that have been made of the Greek plays two 2,000 years later to kind of show that. So the idea that Paul didn't understand the concept of permanent, stable, faithful relationships is a nonsense. He saw them all around him, particularly as he moved more and more into the Greek world. And remember, he's writing uh, to the Corinthians, and in a way he uses this word, arsenokoitis, and Corinth was right in the centre literally just next to Athens 
and and is right in the center of this Greek culture. He'd been there, then he wrote to them. He knew this stuff. And if he wanted to use it, if he wanted to condemn particular abusive relationships, there were words there for them. Right. So he knew permanent, stable, faithful relationships. Secondly, when the argument is made today that if something is permanent, stable and faithful, therefore it should be blessed, often this is, um, what's the ex expression? It's sort of um, not cherry picking. It's um, uh, wanting to have the cake and eat it. There's another expression. I've got long, long COVID brain. What they're basically doing is when that argument comes from the basis of this sort of this this idea in, amongst some liberal um, theologians, pastoral people, that what you're looking for in in the in the Bible is the general themes rather than the specific. So the general theme is human in in a liberal perspective it's human covenanted faithful relationships to mimic the covenant faithful relationship of um god to us now the problem with that line of argument is that if you're looking at a specific at a general theme and then applying it to a particular relationship you need to be logically consistent so you need to look at other consensual relationships and say, why should those not, if they are permanent, stable and faithful, why should those not be covered by this same general argument? Great, thank you. So when someone's talking about, well, the Bible's not really talking about this type of homosexuality, we can look at the detail, look at the historical context and say, well, that actually Paul did really know what he what sort of um relationship and he would have he wouldn't have used these words if he tried been trying to sort of limit it and narrow it down um that sort so of period that sort of period of um of um history so from about mm. sort of let's say 300 bc up to around 350 ad 400 a a ad it's so well documented right we we just continue to find almost day by day month by month new texts all kinds of different texts you know not not just new new test new testament texts all kinds of greek texts egyptian texts roman texts and so on we understand the culture of these of these periods we, we, we understand how corinth was different to tarsus was different to jerusalem was different to the different alexandrias we understand this so well it's it's it, it is it is almost sort of willfully ignorant to say that we don't know whether he knew about these 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 kind of things yeah, that's great. Thank you. Let's move on to something perhaps a little bit more touchy-feely, a bit more visceral. It's not fair. Mm. My, you know, my relative, my friend, my colleague, they're, you know, they've got the same sex partner. They're finally happy. Surely God wouldn't want them to be miserable. I, I feel this has, you, you, know, you might not be able to sort of point to a, a proof text, but with our modern focus on well-being, surely, you know, God wants us to be happy. And I see this particularly in people who, you know, might have been pretty solid on biblical orthodoxy before. But now that their son has come out as gay and they want them to be happy, it has a real traction. Mm -hmm. And perhaps also for people who may have heard a bit of a prosperity gospel yeah. um, and believes that God's what God is God wants all, all good things for us now this has a lot of weight sure 
Um, I'm going to answer that in two ways, and and this is you, you're absolutely absolutely right. This is quite emotional. This is quite um, uh, in our modern 21st century self-centered culture, where it's about self-actualization and my 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 happiness and my well-being. This is a really powerful argument. So the first thing that we have to recognize is that we do live in a very self-centered culture in a way that um, for almost 2000 years, we didn't. And people in good ways and bad ways, people through history fitted into society and found their place and fitted into the into the norms and ex expectations and found meaning in them and what's happened in a culture that has stripped away in the west certainly has stripped away this sort of cosmic mantle of the explanation of what's going on which is basically god created the universe and he created you to know him and to love him and to find your way back to him via the the sacrifice of Jesus, which will sort that out for you. Once we strip that away, once we stripped away this sort of higher purpose, higher narrative, all we're left with is us. So the first thing that we need to recognize is that it's not fair starts with me as the arbiter of what isn't isn't fair. And what's interesting about the Bible is that the Bible starts with God as the arbiter of um, what isn't isn't fair. So uh, one of the most powerful verses for me I have encountered is Proverbs 1, 6, which says, you know, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And I kind of spent two or three years re rebelling against that. I don't want to be in fear of God. That, that's not kind of God I want to know. But once I started to learn Hebrew, when I went off to the vicar factory and I learned Hebrew and I went back to that, it, it's fear. It's not like being in awe of God. Oh, God, aren't you wonderful? It's literally me shaking, pants filling fear right the fear of god is the beginning of wisdom why because once you recognize that god is the sovereign god of the universe and owns as it were owns everything and can do with everything what he wants in the same way that paul sort of uh, describes in romans 9 like the, the the potter who makes pots and they break and that, that they're, they're his pots he can just do with them what he wants once you get that in in your mind and yet realize that God loves you infinitely and has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to, to, to die for you. At that point, you are become a place where you are wise. Right. What's really interesting is when you go look at the um, go to Genesis three and when when uh, the serpent tempts Eve and says, oh, you know, you you'll become like God, knowing what is good and evil. Um, knowing is a really it's a really interesting translation. It's almost as though the sense of the passage is knowing not in the sense of um, I see this thing and I know that it is a brick, but rather I see this thing and I decide that it is a brick. So that's the way that, that God knows stuff in terms of that he makes it and says that's that. So, so what the serpent is, taste, is tempting Eve with and then Adam is to see things and decide the power over them and what they are, what good is and what evil is. So, so we start at this point where this idea of this, it's not fair, is, is a question rooted in humanity and hum, human sense of what is good and bad and not God's sense. Right. So that means that, yes, we are going to come up with things that seem right to us, but the end thereof is death. Right. Secondly, and you're absolutely right to bring up the whole prosperity gospel thing. 
because this now gets into concepts of suffering. Again, we have been taught in the West, in this generation, that the aim of life is to be successful and happy and free and prosperous and without worries in the world. So that's why we buy our lottery tickets. That's why we want to be on, well, not all of us want to be on Love Island. It would be pretty horrifying if you saw me on Love Island. But that's why, you know, that's where celebrity culture comes from. That's where, you know, people think, think they can get, you know, that's why people go on to Britain's Got Talent or The X Factor, and they cannot sing for Toffee, but they think they should be given a chance and they could be the next Robbie Williams. And, and really, they can't. They should never be. They're just not that good. Um, we want to succeed and to have a happy life. And we think that's what we are owed. And the brutal fact is that we live in a fallen, broken world, right? And sometimes that is really, really challenging. So for me, the main challenging thing in my life hasn't actually been my homosexuality. It was challenging for a bit. Actually, it was a stillbirth of our second child. That is the most painful thing that's ever happened to me. But it's also the most transformative thing that has ever happened to me. I was a lousy priest until my child died. I really was. I wasn't very good at all. And suddenly I discovered deep pain and I discovered an ability to recognize deep pain in other people and to bring Jesus to them. And I think sometimes what God wants to do with us is to walk with us through the suffering and to meet Jesus in that suffering. Right. The, I mean, yes, I'm, I'm not saying that we go through, you know, some of the more obscure mystical practices where you almost like stab yourself to 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 suffer and that will somehow bring you closer to Jesus. No, don't stab yourself. But you might get stabbed in the course of your life. And because God is sovereign and supreme over all things, he's in charge of that and he can use that to to his purposes now i'm not going to go as far as saying you know everything you know god is in charge of everything in, in, in a sense that he will not give you anything that is too hard for you to cope with i think actually god lets things happen to us that are far too hard for us to cope with but what we do find in bringing our suffering to the cross and i can speak from this personally first with, with my homosexuality secondly with the with the death of of my son is that when we bring our suffering to the cross, we find union with Christ there. And this is a deep spiritual thing that really happens. If Jesus died for your sins and for the wounds of the, of the world on you, that means that at every second in your life, you are connected to Jesus on the cross. And the deeper the wound goes, the bigger the connection. God for his purposes to bring glory to his name has let us suffer in this world to tell death and resurrection stories to be a walking walking examples of the gospel and some of us are i hesitate to use the word privilege but some of us because of our lives are are, are privileged are called to embody that in real ways I think it's not fair that some of the people I, I walk alongside in church haven't suffered in the way that other people have, because actually a little bit of suffering really helps you. If it's guided, if it's mentored properly, actually really helps you unite with Jesus. So 
that sounds a bit of a downer. I'm not saying go out now and flagellate yourself and that will bring you closer to, uh, uh, to Jesus. What I am saying is that the things that's from this world don't seem fair can actually be instrumental to the way that God is weaving a story through your life and inviting you in submitting to his sovereignty to speak about Jesus in your life. It's a bit like the Indian, you know, uh, it's Indian Jones and the Temple of Doom, or is it the first one? I can't remember which of the movies, but basically there's the chasm that he has to cross. And there's basically, there's an invisible bridge, but he has to trust that when he steps out, the bridge will carry him. And for those of us who struggle with homosexuality, we're invited to walk onto that bridge of faith, to to, to trust that God has a path for us that will lead us to the place where he wants us to be. And that path that doesn't fix itself in three months, six months, it, it, it is a lifelong journey, but we get to go highs and lows through it. And And if we never step out in faith to trust God, we're never going to discover what's at the end of that bridge that he's calling us to. Now, I'm going to finish by saying, let's say, I I appreciate that can appear facile and, and, you know, sort of, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, that's okay for you, Peter. But let me tell you, a lot of us who've been involved in TFT for a long time, a lot of us who deal with this issue personally, we have walked this walk we do understand the struggles that you are going through and we are here for you. That's really helpful. And I I sort of echo that a lot of True Freedom Trust members have got to the point where they're thankful for the struggles that they've had, not that it's made their life easy, but because it's, it's, it's been a strain, they've had to turn to God and find him walking with them that they wouldn't actually have it any other way so on on the surface yes they're perhaps called to celibacy and um and struggle and hardship but actually they've been blessed and um and matured through that process so you've taken us a little bit from you know from the rather self-centered idea it's not fair um to a much more mature view of um of suffering and calling so that's very challenging and there's loads of there's loads of stuff we could talk about that we could Mm. do a whole tft focusing on that couldn't we We talk about teresa of avila and the the arrow the heart about saint Saint john of the cross we can talk about journey erickson tarda to bring like a modern day saint so much so much depth to be found what's interesting is um the second thing of work at wycliffe hall that i remember was i wrote an essay long essay looking at uh, conservative pastoral books on homosexuality and liberal books and looking for this concept what we call purgation so this this idea that i bring my suffering to god it's a very classical christian idea it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years bring my suffering to god and my sin and i let and i offer it to him and i let him work it out and i found it again and again in the conservative books that i read and in the liberal books the arguments for liberal position i never ever found it Peter, we've, we need to um, just move to our final argument now. At our sort of speaking engagements, we found it's got a lot of traction these days. The idea that the orthodox, traditional, biblical view 
on sexuality is causing harm to LGBT people. And this seems to have a lot of traction with a lot of focus on mental health. You know, there's, it's good to have focus on mental health and this idea of people growing up in the church um, just coming out with their own sexuality and just feeling that the church is really heavy and negative on them. This perception that churches are anti-gay, um, reinforced by anecdotes of people who've self-harmed or even committed suicide. And and this kind of growing concept of a you know the need for safe spaces. Yep. Uh, are our churches safe spaces for LGBT people and the call for Christians to stop pushing this traditional view of sexuality because it's really causing harm. Yeah. So this is the point where I'm going to put my statistician hat back on again, because when we talk about harm within the area of sort of research and psychological un under understanding, we, we want to quantify it. What we want to say is, is it, it, it's no, it's, it's, it's no good just relying on somebody saying I was harmed. What does that actually mean, right? So if somebody says, well, I, I, I went on this, uh, I, went, I went to this Barnabas group and now I've had a nervous breakdown, right? Does that mean that the Barnabas group was bad and caused a nervous breakdown? Well, it might do. But what actually the best way to assess that would be to do a proper psychological profile of the, of the person before they went to the, to the Barnabas group, then let them go to the Barnabas group, then analyze them again properly afterwards and see if there's an actual difference. A false recall is a really powerful thing in sort of these kind of anecdotal surveys of, of all kinds. It works, on, works as well with sort of a lot of these sort of pro-ex-gay surveys as, 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 as well. There's a lot of false recall. Um, there's a lot of, you know, people uh, wanting to support a particular position and then making the facts shift towards it. So, so when we look at actual harm, right? Firstly, the plural of anecdote is not anecdata. It's just lots of anecdotes. The best way to do it is to do proper research, right? More recently, we've had some really good research on, and again, this is proper research, not anecdotally driven, proper research, trying to sort of um, get a broad sort of sample of people of the psychological profile of people who belong to different types of churches. And there's been a few good bits of research in this area. And what it actually shows is that people who go to conservative churches and struggle with their sexuality, I hate the word struggle with it, but you know, let's use, the, use that phrase, they struggle with their sexuality, um, don't seem to end up in a better or worse position relatively than people who go to a liberal church and end up with you know, and, and, and struggle with the sexuality or have, have mental health issues around that. And things like uh, internalised homophobia and stuff like, like that just doesn't vary in terms of the changes between the two populations. And, and what the research seems to show, and this matches some of the, the sort of um, sexual identity work that Mark Yarhouse has done, is that really your, your mental health around your sexual identity and your, your, your sexuality is less to do with what you're being told from the pulpit or the stage and more to do with how you integrate your sexuality with your wider religious life. So if you 
integrate your sexuality with your wider with your wider religious life, which is in a liberal revisionist environment, you tend to be better than people who don't. If you integrate your sexuality within a conservative theological framework, you tend to be okay. It's the people who are unsettled on both sides who have the greater mental health issues. This, 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 this isn't a case of people going, well, I went to a conservative church and they told me that, that I couldn't have sex outside of marriage and now I'm uh, depressed. It's actually, there are as many sort of proportionally people who go are in liberal revisionist environments and don't like the teaching. And that leaves them depressed but for, for some of the theological reasons that we dis, dis, discussed earlier. So it's really about making friends with your sexuality within the religious context that you are in is the path to better mental health, right? And struggling with whatever my temptation, whatever my fullness is, and the theological framework that I am in is an issue not just around sexuality, it's around all kinds of different uh, behaviours and temptations and, and, and issues that people have. The bottom line is this, beyond anecdotal stuff that tends to be driven by research that is what we have sample bias or is very selective in who it's talking to. Beyond those kind of bits of research, I can cite you some great examples of that and really poor statistical stuff. Beyond that, proper research that tries to get a broader view across different religious tra traditions and so on, demonstrates again and again that conservative or liberal teaching is not the thing that causes mental health problems. What causes mental health problems is not integrating your sexuality with your religious framework. So, so actually, you, you know, I, I, I almost as a pastor, somebody comes comes to me and, and says, well, I just, I don't like being in a con conservative church. I will say to them, well, have you tried a, a revisionist church? Have you tried settling into that theological framework? Not that I'm encouraging our, our listeners to do that, because often actually what, what, what I find is that when they do that, they go away, they do six months a year, they come back and, and they go, you know what? Grass isn't greener. <laughs> There's much issues over there. I now want to kind of integrate this. And that brings us, integrating brings us back to what we were talking about right at the start of the, of the podcast, brings us neatly around full, full circle, which is about diving deep from the conservative perspective, perspective into the wider meta-narrative around sex and the gospel and discovering what the Bible has to say about how sex between a husband and a wife speaks about the union of Jesus and his and his church. And once you fit your sexuality into that framework, it, it, it suddenly becomes a lot uh, much more comfortable. That's very helpful. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, thank, that does round us off nicely. Remembering that bigger picture, trying to lift our eyes just off ourselves and look at God's great vision for us as his people. Now, it's not to say that conservative churches do not have a, a big job to do in doing good pastoral care. And too often we sort of farmed it off to TFT or Living Out or whatever group, right, and said, oh, yeah, they're the specialists. They, they, they do that. Uh, too often our 20s and 30s groups are basically marriage factories, which if you're same-sex attracted doesn't really work. Right? So, so, so we, we do need to think about what our pastoral care is. But fundamentally, conservative teaching does not cause mental health problems. 
person. But you're right. There are things that we can improve in our churches, making yeah. them more welcoming, challenging prejudice, and promoting singleness as equal in in value to to marriage, which will really help people who are you know called to to the single life to mm-hmm. feel at home, to feel welcome, and like you say, to be able to work and integrate the Bible and its teaching into into our lives in a better way. Thank you so much, Peter, for your time and your wisdom. It's uh, always good to talk to you. And uh, you've really given us lots to think about today. So thank you so much. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, This is, even though I've stopped kind of blogging 10 years ago, I do write guest blogs as and when. And this whole kind of uh, deep, deep diving into what the Bible says about sex, what that means about Jesus and, and how we can integrate that into our spirituality is something that continues to fascinate me to this day. Thanks to Peter for all his insights. It's always great to hear him combine his Bible knowledge with his expertise in statistics. In our conversation, we were only able to look fairly briefly at four of these arguments. But on our website at truefreedomtrust.co.uk, you can find further articles and reviews, and you can also sign up to receive our Ascend magazine. Well, you've been listening to the Ascend Higher podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.